Welcome to Bill's Church of Gurney podcast. This week, we continue on in our series, Christ's Cross and Empty Tomb. The name of the sermon is called An Fact Tungen, Sacred, Secular, and Salvation. And Pastor Spencer will be preaching from Luke 21, 5 through 38. Let's join Pastor Spencer now. Welcome to the Village Church of Gurney. My name is Spencer Smith, and I have the honor and the privilege of serving here as the student discipleship pastor. And we've been here for nearly a year, and it's been awesome getting to know some of you. And if we haven't met yet, I'd love to connect with you and talk with you. Uh, it's been awesome getting to know parents, to know students, to see who are the Cubs fans, who are the Sox fans and so forth. But this morning, to start out, I want to begin with asking this question. And the question is this. How do you know if something has become an idol in your life? How do you know if something has become an idol in your life? Or how do you know if you have begun to love something more than you love Jesus? About five years ago, something very interesting happened in our family. Every night we do devotional time with our four daughters, and one of the books that we were going through is called the Big Picture Story Bible, where it traces all these themes throughout Scripture. And what shows up throughout this story Bible is this theme of worshiping idols, and it does a really good job depicting this. And in one of the pages, it shows a woman who's bowing down to this idol that is kind of like an Egyptian god, where it has the body of a man and then the head of a dog. And it talks about how you shouldn't worship idols. Well, a week later, I walk into my daughter's bedroom, and she has all of her stuffed animals lined up, and she's lying down prostrate on the ground. And I say, what? what are you doing? And she says, I'm worshiping idols. <laughs> we had some, uh, some things for the bonfire later on that night. <laughs> now, it's, it's really easy for us to say, okay, that's easy to see idol worship in somebody else, but it's a lot harder for us to see it in our own lives. Think about it this way, returning to children, right? So if you have a boy and another boy playing with toys, let's say boy number one has a car that he's playing with and boy number two has a bear that he's playing with. If boy number two snatches the car away from him, how is he going to respond? He might hit, kick, scream, yell, punch. He might do whatever. Essentially, how you find out if something is an idol in your life is how do you respond when it gets taken away from you? How you find out if something is an idol in your life is how you respond when it gets taken away from you. Even though we'd like to admit that we're a little bit more mature than children, it's the same way with us, right? When you lose something in your life, you immediately find out if you've begun to love it more than you love God. The little boy said, I love my toy more than I love him. The little boy cares more about the object rather than the image of God and his friend. 
And so this morning, we're going to find out we do have a lot more in common with children than we care to admit. And Jesus is going to invite us to expose us to some of our own idols. Now, if you're going to wonder, how is Jesus going to do that? He's going to do it in the most unusual way, but, you know, he's Jesus. That's what he, he does. And how he is going to do that this morning is through eschatology. <laughs> he's going to talk about the end times. So we'll be in Luke chapter 21, verses 5 through 38. And Jesus is going to give us a final exhortation or sermon that is on level 1,000 anxiety. And he's going to talk about the future. And Jesus' desire, this is very important, his desire isn't to preach doom and gloom, but his desire is to drive us away from our idols and towards him. I've broken up the text this morning into three different sections where we're going to see the sacred in verses 5 through 19, then we're going to look at the secular in verses 20 through 26, and then finally, salvation in verses 27 through 38. But let's remember that when we lose something, we very quickly find out if it's become an idol in our life. So before we open God's word, let's open in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be with us in this moment, that you would expose me of my own idols in my life. What am I holding on to, Jesus, that I need to let go of? I pray that you would expose it. I pray that through the power of your word, that you would shape our hearts and our minds to become more like your son. So that as we let go of idols, we can hold on to hope. And I pray these things in your name. Amen. So Luke chapter 21, starting in verse 5. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, we actually have Bibles in the seats in front of you. Uh, if you don't own one, go ahead and take it. Uh, it's Christmas. Christmas is coming early this year. So go ahead and take that. That's a free gift from us to you. But we are in verse 5 we're going to read through verse 9. And it says this. Now, while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, Jesus said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, see that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. If you recall last week in our, our previous text, it was the setting of where this widow comes and she gives all that she has to the temple, right? So if you picture this woman who is a widow who has nothing in this world, she, she has very little to give, that she is walking through this grand temple. This would have been a moment of potential insecurity for her. 
Because it's recorded that the temple at, the, at this point in history, that the entire outside of it was covered in pure gold and pure marble. It was so bright and so luxurious that people would have stood in awe, gawking at it. The value of this building would have been incomprehensible. It was around 500 yards long and 400 yards in width. And here at this little old Lady, this widow is coming and giving all that she has to God. But verse 5 says that some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings. It would seem that the people in Jesus' day cared more about the adornings of a church building rather than the adornings of a widow. They cared more about the object rather than the image of God in this woman. Throughout scripture, God created sacred things to draw us to worship him. That is the purpose of sacred things, so that we could come closer to God. Now, I can picture Jesus after having this interaction with the widow. He's walking around with his popcorn, and all of a sudden, he overhears these people gawking at the temple. They're like, oh, look at it, the beautiful gold, the beautiful marble, and Jesus pops in, and he says, Enjoy it while it all lasts. It's going to burn. (laughs) Like, what is that, right? Did Jesus forget to take a pastoral care in seminary? Like, what? What he is trying to do is to exploit their idols. You see, he says that the temple, the reflection of heaven and God's presence, that one day it's going to be destroyed. And we know that the beginning of this happens in Luke 23, 45, when the curtain is torn in two. That is the beginning of it. Now, naturally, uh, when he says, hey, it's not going to last forever, uh, his audience comes and says, well, what, what are the signs going to be? Tell us what is going to happen so that we can know. And as I was thinking about this, I thought of two different reasons why they might want this. One is that they often asked for signs so that Jesus could prove that he's the Messiah, right? So what is the proof, Jesus, that this is going to happen? But I think also at the same time, maybe what's within their hearts is that, hey, if this is going to get destroyed, if my idol is going to get destroyed, then I need to prepare to protect it. So either way, there is a hint of skepticism in Jesus' prophecy on their behalf. And out of reluctance, Jesus comes and he gives them signs, right? He says that there are going to be false Christs, famines, wars will arise. Or in the end, or in the telos, that it's not going to happen at once. And so Jesus comes and he shows them the signs, Now, it's very easy for us to make two mistakes whenever we do talk about eschatology and different systems of theology that I see happen a lot of times within the church, that we have our own system, our own doctrine, and we read verses like this, and then we start to talk about all the isms, right? So if the words like free will and predestination were in the text, we would immediately be formed into different camps. But we have to be careful because... We don't want our system to let us miss what Jesus is truly trying to tell us in this moment. And at the same time, when it, 
when Scripture talks about the end times, we don't want to try to figure out when it's coming, right? Jesus says that we don't know the exact day and time. It's going to come like a thief in the night. But we have to remember what Jesus is trying to do in this moment is to expose the, not the future, but to expose their idols. So what does Jesus do? He, he speaks ambiguously. Notice that it says, the end will not come at once. <laughs> the end will not come at once. I don't know. For me, when I hear the end, it's like, oh, it's the end. It's come. It is at once. But he does actually make sense in this moment. Imagine you're at the movie theater over at Gurney Mills, and you, you walk in unaware that you're super early to the movie, and you notice that there are some people still sitting down, and the, the credits are rolling, and you turn to them, and you say, uh, is it the movie over? And they say, yes. And you start to wonder, wait, but why are they still sitting here? Why, if the movie's over, why are they still sitting down? And then you remember it's an Avengers film. And there's always that extra scene, right? That extra scene that you want to wait around for. And then you realize that the movie is over, but it's not over. The end will not be at once. This is the nature of the rest of Jesus' sermon. And whenever we do read about eschatology, are we in the end times? Yes and no. But Jesus continues in verses 10 through 19. Look at that with me. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places, famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair on your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Commentators say that these verses were fulfilled with the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, but let's not leave Jesus by missing the point. Jesus is not just skeptical of the future or ignorantly optimistic, but he wants to show them that they've idolized the temple. He wants to purge them of this. And idolizing sacred things is nothing new. Idolizing sacred things that are supposed to point us towards Jesus is nothing new. In 1 Samuel 4.3, the, the Ark of the, the Covenant is idolized. It says this, and when the people came up to the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us 
and save us from the power of our enemies. You see, idolizing sacred things is not new. They, they, they thought, oh, the ark can save us. They didn't stop and ask, well, God, what happened? They started to put their faith in the object, in the sacred, in the reflection. And still for us today, it's easier for us as Christians to idolize sacred things. Why? Because sacred things that God has created are reflections that point us to him. And remember, an idol is when the creature worships the reflection rather than the actual object. So what are three things that are supposed to point us towards God that we have made idols in our own lives? If they did in the Old Testament, if they did in the New Testament, we can be assured that we still do this today. What are three things? I'll give you three examples. The first one is this. We look for marriage to complete us. We look for love within marriage to become this thing that is our saving hope. Paul tells us in, our letter, in his letters that marriage is a sacred reflection of church's relationship to Jesus, and yet we're tempted to idolize it. We grow up watching Disney movies, and we're supposed to find that person and live happily ever after and say, oh, you complete me. And we hold on to it with unrealistic expectations, and then we get married, and we're like, oh, wait, <laughs> this wasn't in the Disney movie. <laughs> How the church views marriage is often an idol. Ask the single people in our church. I have a friend who's 34 years old who is still not married, and he says, sometimes people think I have a disease. They say, oh, I'll find you a good Christian girl, and then you'll be happy. The theology of celibacy within the church tells us that oftentimes we do idolize marriage because we look at our singles and we say, oh, we need to fix you. But the purpose of marriage is to draw us closer to Christ. But we idolize it. How about the second one? We idolize the peace of family. We want to have families so that they can complete us also. As a student discipleship pastor, one of the sacred idols that I see time and time again is how we make each other idols, right? Jesus, often time over and over again, when people say, hey, I want to follow you, you Jesus, where he well, he says, well, if you want to follow me, you have to hate your mother and father. One man even comes to Jesus and says, hey, I want to follow you, Jesus, but I have to bury my father first. And Jesus' reply is, well, let the dead bury themselves. Time and time again, Jesus says, you either follow me ultimately I have to be the ultimate thing. It can't be the idol of family. I see this time and time again within student ministry. I had a parent years ago who, whose child was hurt by another student. And she literally said to me in my office, she said, if they really hurt my child in this way, they're going to have a bullseye on their back. And I was like, hold on. Let's not idolize 
our family. Let's not idolize our children. If you want to know if your family, whether it be your spouse, child, parent, is your idol, ask yourself this. What would happen if they get taken away? You see, Jesus sees how his audience had made the sacred temple their idol, and he says, it's not going to last. What if I told you and remind you that your children won't always be with you? What's another idol that we have within the church today? Well, it's the church. We put our hope in the church rather in Jesus himself. And we see this because within the U.S., the strategy of the church has become build it bigger with more extravagant buildings and people will come. The next step is to find a charismatic young preacher who can provide a 30-minute TED talk that will leave you inspired for six days and come back next week for more. And the proof behind that we've made the church building and the strategies our idol is how we share the gospel. How do you share the gospel? You invite somebody to church on Sunday morning. But that's not sharing the gospel. Sharing the gospel is you yourself doing it. What do we say? What, what is our strategy here at Village Church? It's you guys. <laughs> Like, we are God's strategy for reaching Lake County. But we have been tempted to make the church our idol. We've been tempted to make church leaders, celebrity pastors our idols by thinking that if we just invite people into a program, then they'll get saved. But we are God's strategy. How you know if something's become your idol is if you lose it. What would happen if a pastor leaves? Would you leave also? What if I told you your Bible study or small group isn't going to last forever? What goes through your mind? What if I told you that Village Church can't go back to the good old days but can only move forward? What if I told you that your favorite worship song is never going to be sung again on Sunday morning? When we lose something, we find out if we've made it our idol. And an idol is when you take something good and make it ultimate. And we'd like to believe, we're tempted to believe that we control our idols, but in reality, our idols end up controlling us. And so Jesus preaches on the future to reveal to them that what he has given as sacred is to point them towards him, but really it's become a sin. And not only does this happen within the sacred, but it happens within the secular. Look at verses 20 through 26 with me. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. 
You see, Jerusalem was supposed to be this place of symbolic safety. It was the secular thing that God has set up to protect them. And throughout the Old Testament, time and time again, the people of God are defending Jerusalem from their enemies. And eventually, in Jesus' time, Rome ends up winning. For some of Jesus' audience, they were okay for a, with a Roman occupation because they could still worship God in the temple as long as they had their own spirituality, they were okay with it. But again, Jesus attacks this potential idol of safety in the secular by saying it's not going to last forever. He says that Jerusalem will fall. A historian by the name of Josephus actually recalls Jesus's fulfillment. He recalls this prophecy. It says this, while the holy house was on fire, everything was plundered that came to hand, and 10,000 of those that were caught were slain. Nor was there a commiseration of any age or any reverence of gravity, but children and old men and profane persons and priests were all slain in the same manner, so that this war went around all sorts of men and brought them to destruction." And as well as those that made supplicated for their lives as those that defended themselves by fighting. The flame was also carried a long way and made an echo together with the groans of those that were slain. And because this hill was high and the works of the temple very great, one would have thought that the whole city had been on fire. Nor can one imagine anything either greater or more terrible than this noise. For there was at once a shout of Roman legions who were marching all together. Now we have to flash back. We have to remember what is the context? Where are we, right? Jesus is just in the temple. He overheard somebody saying, hey, look how awesome this is. They're adorning the beauty. And he says that it's going to all burn. And although I wouldn't say that history repeats itself, it most certainly echoes itself. And today we are tempted to idolize secular things. We're tempted to idolize government. We're tempted to idolize money and safety. If my form of government or politics doesn't win the day, then God's kingdom can't possibly be established. Recall a few weeks ago how Pastor David led us through uh, this concept of God and, of, and government, right? He said that if God is Lord, so I don't put my ultimate hope in human governments, but in God's kingdom. If God is Lord, then I don't bury my head, but engage because I am in the world God created. It's easy to put our hope to idolize money in our careers, that if I could just have one more zero on a paycheck, or if I could get that position at work. But one secular idol that I have noticed since moving to Gurney is this, asking the question, why do we live in the suburbs? <laughs> why do people live in the suburbs? This has been in the back of my mind for the, the past 10 months. Uh, like, if you want to get famous, you move to LA, right? 
If you want to be a young, upcoming professional, you move to New York City. And if you want to become a depressed sports fan, you move to Chicago, apparently. (laughs) But why do people live in the suburbs? I've lived in the jungle, I've lived in the desert, I've lived in the country, I've lived in the city, and now I've arrived here in the glorious suburbs of Gurney, Illinois. But I propose that part of the attractiveness of living in the suburbs is safety. You see, if you live in this city, you might be afraid that you get robbed. But if you live in the the woods, you might be afraid that you get eaten. So the suburbs seem to play a little healthy medium ground in there. Here we can live in a neighborhood with privacy fences, two-car garages, so that you don't have to ever see the neighbors if you don't want to. We have a plethora of options for schools, jobs, food, churches, and leisure. And I think initially why the suburbs have grown so rapidly throughout the U.S. is because they can make us feel like we're in control and we're in power over our own lives, that we can be safe, or can we? You see, Jesus' words speak to us in a very special way this morning. He exposes his audience idols of the sacred and the secular by speaking about the future. And there was a little event that happened three years ago where we all lost the sacred and the secular. COVID-19. Immediately overnight, the world was turned upside down. No longer could we gather in the sacred places on Sunday morning and worship together. No longer could families celebrate birthday parties or gather to mourn those who had passed away. Loved ones had limited access to visiting family members in hospitals and nursing homes. Kids drove their parents mad with needing to be homeschooled, while marriages crumpled from the pressures of the world. Meanwhile, mental health and suicide was rising through the roof as people argued over masks, social distancing, and toilet paper. I remember opening our fridge and getting my daughter's yogurt thinking, is this the last time that they're gonna have yogurt? The world was collapsing, and verses 25 through 26 seem to be true where it says, and there will be signs and sun and moon and stars, and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the seas and the waves, waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Doesn't that describe the past three years? History seems to echo itself as Jesus says the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem would destroy the idols of the sacred and the secular, and that's what COVID-19 did. Over the past three years, it feels as if there's been an ongoing spiritual, physical, emotional, and mental attack plaguing our planet. But this feeling of dread, this feeling of despair, of Boating doom and anxiety is exactly what Martin Luther felt 500 years ago with what he described as anfektungen, anfektungen. 
You see, for 200 years leading up to Martin Luther's life, the Black Plague had nearly killed half of Europe. This would continue up until his life. And as Martin Luther was searching for meaning in life, his, his earthly father would say, hey, I want you to become a lawyer. And he would say, no, I'm not going to become a lawyer, dad. I'm going to become a monk. And then he wondered if his heavenly father loved him. So he was experiencing the sense of double abandonment in his life, already plagued by depression, Not only did he feel lost, he felt alone, trying to earn God's mercy. And so he would practice this monastic lifestyle, hoping that his heavenly father would give him mercy, so much so to the point that he almost killed himself. And the first time when he practiced, when he performed the communion, he almost messed it up. He was experiencing despair. He was experiencing anfaktungen, this all-encompassing trial and attack on a spiritual, physical, emotional, and mental level that drove him towards Christ is exactly what we're experiencing today. And as I was thinking through this, uh, uh, Pastor Eric ended up letting me borrow a book that was describing what Luther was going through during his day, and notice the similarities. The language is almost the same. This book was written in 2015, and this author says this, indeed, we might, have, we might make a contemporary observation that levels of anxiety and depression are higher in the West now more than they have ever been in this moment in history, and yet we are more affluent and in terms over the natural world have never been more powerful. Our godlike self-understanding, however, keeps colliding with the facts of death and the fallen fight nightness of this world. Truly, ours is an era where Anfektungen has the character of a social affliction of pandemic proportions. Humanity has never had more power, and yet we've never felt more unsafe. The pandemic reminded us that we are not in control and that the sacred and the secular are temporary. I assume this author didn't claim to have the gift of prophecy like Jesus does in our passage, but I think he nailed it. What Luther experienced is what you and me and nearly eight billion others are experiencing daily. The future of the sacred and the secular are being held on by a thread. But there's a difference between Luther and us. He let his Anfektungen fuel his passion for Christ daring to make a difference in the world, even if it would cost him his life. Luther let his weakness drive him to God's word so that he could experience it like he never had before. So that when he read Romans 1, 16 through 17, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. He knew he couldn't save himself, so he had to say, Christ alone. What made Luther Luther? He let his pandemic, he let his Anfaktungen 
expose his own idols so that he could read the Bible like he had never had before. Let's put it this way. As a parent, when you have a child far from God, the story of the prodigal son takes on a whole different meaning. When you're a wife and a mom struggling with infertility and you read the story of Sarah and Abraham, the story pierces the anfectungan of your soul. When you feel lost and alone in this world without a purpose, Jesus' final words to his disciples saying, I will never leave you or forsake you brings you peace and shalom. When you experience anxiety about the future, you start to look at the lilies of the field and the birds of the air knowing that God is going to provide for you. When your health is failing you, you hear Paul's words to the Corinthians that transcends the doctor's news. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Or maybe with the death of a loved one, It makes you see Jesus at the womb weeping for his friend Lazarus, reminding you that your tears are not falling by themselves. If you're a student wondering how you can live out your faith in a world that hates Christianity, you read Romans 8.31 that gives you bold confidence that says, if God is for us, who can be against us? For Luther, he believed that God allowed his anfectungen to plague humanity so that we could truly know Jesus, truly know him through his word and be moved in such a way that the church would come and change the world, that we would be an outpost, that we would be a light in the darkness saying that even though the future is dark, there's still hope that we know the end outcome. For Luther, he wondered that if he was living in the end times. The end credits were rolling because when you lose something, you find out whether or not it is your idol. And so notice Jesus' final encouragement in this section on salvation, 27 through 38, where it says this. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and glory Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, see, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also when you see these things take place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, that day will come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was preaching, he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet, 
And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Yesterday, I was praying and thinking through this text. And I think what we need as Christians is a holy anxiety within our eschatology that holds on to hope. That if we're holding on to our idols of these temporary things that aren't going to last forever, that we've let go of the gospel. But if we are truly holding on to Jesus, then the world will look at us and say, wow, the world's burning, there's chaos. Where is your hope coming from? And I hope that they see Village Church as a place where we do, in Jesus' own words, we'll have an opportunity to witness that we do know that not a hair on our head will perish, that we will endure, that salvation is near, that Jesus' words won't pass away. Do you worship Jesus or do you worship the reflection? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for these words. And I pray that as the world rages on in chaos, that we would hold on to hope, that we would hold on to you, Jesus, that we wouldn't be deceived by putting our hope in these temporary things that are meant to draw us to you and these temporary things that will have an end. So I pray that we would be encouraged, that we would know that salvation is near that the news can remind us that our, our moments are temporary, but we have eternity in you. And I pray these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Village Church of Gurney's podcast. If you would like to know more about Village Church, you can go to our Facebook page under Village Church of Gurney or go to www.gurney.org.